even when somebody died in the hospital and we try to debrief what happened, we are told by leadership to just respect the privacy of the family and that's a topic that we are not going to talk about. So it's very, very unfortunate. We try to celebrate the lives of our colleagues and not forget about their legacy. But uh, even during their death, there is lots of secrecy and shame and toxicity all, all around in the medical field. What is a wounded healer? Who are they? And how can we help them not only survive, but to thrive? Let's talk all about it with Dr. Omar Rada, a board-certified psychiatrist, Harvard-trained trauma expert, and author, right here in episode 393 of The Nurse Keith Show. Hey there, this is Nurse Keith. This podcast is always about you and your personal professional development, your career, and the healthcare system writ large. And I'm here to share education, ideas, diatribes, and informative interviews with some of the most inspiring people out there. I love having you along for the ride, and I thank you from the bottom of my nurse podcaster's heart for being part of the growing Nurse Keith Nation. And if you'd like to help other people find the show, please consider leaving a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon, or Spotify. It really helps other people find us. And if you'd like to become a patron of the show, head over to patreon.com forward slash Nurse Keith, and I appreciate any effort you make on your end to help support the Nurse Keith Show. You can head over to nursekeith.com to find the show notes for this episode, and they'll also be in whatever app where you find yourself listening to this episode at this very moment. We are here, like I said, at the top of the show with Dr. Omar Rada. He is a board-certified psychiatrist. I'm holding his amazing book in my hand, The Wounded Healer, The Pain and Joy of Caregiving. And Omar, it is so good to have you here. And the first question I want to ask you is, how would you define the concept or the term of the wounded healer? Yeah, thank, thank you, Keith. It's uh, really my pleasure to be with you. And uh, I really appreciate you providing this platform. So uh, I believe uh, caregivers, uh, not only doctors and nurses, but even parents and teachers and first responders, social workers, uh, all of us are, uh, in a way, wounded healers. We can take care of others. We mainly focus on the trauma stories of uh, our clients. We try to nurse their wounds. And sometimes that comes at the expense of our own, you know, unacknowledged wounds. And sometimes what they share with us will reopen our own trauma and trigger something inside of us. That's why I wrote The Wounded Healer. I wanted, you know, the caregivers to remember that in order to continue to care for others, you should not forget yourself. Hmm. And this book isn't solely for healthcare providers, though it's very, very helpful for healthcare providers. And it provides a lot of different concepts and and strategies for how to deal with this, this woundedness that we all carry. So if we begin with healthcare providers, so we're just coming out of, well, the pandemic's not over, but kind of like the the great existential angst of the COVID-19 pandemic. What did you see and what have you gleaned from the last several years in terms of your research and just 
what you absorbed from what you've seen and heard all around you. Yeah, I mean, uh, I am a psychiatrist, so I, I wrote this book mainly for my colleagues in the you know medicine and the nursing fields. At the same time, many teachers and people from you know uh, chaplaincy and even parents they told me some of the tools and the tips and the you know skills shared in the book uh, were helpful for them too. Uh, but uh, I agree with you. I mean, um, especially after the global pandemic. We have noticed a very high rate of burnout, and I wrote the book to bear witness because I, I have seen my, my colleagues from nurses and doctors leaving the field, and this is the field that uh, they once loved, and they thought that is going to be their career for the rest of their lives. But uh, maybe they have found out that you know there is lots of dysfunction in the field, there is lots of toxicity, there is lots of suffering that's. Uh, we, we have learned things in nursing and medical schools that uh, are quite toxic to our mental health. And, uh, you know, I even have seen some of my colleagues, they numb their moral injury through using substance. Some of uh, us, we have uh, destroyed our relationships. Maybe there is a high rate of divorce and separation. And uh, unfortunately, some of my colleagues have died of suicide. So yes. it was time for me to speak up and and the status quo is uh, not acceptable anymore. Yes, and I'm glad you brought up suicide because the numbers, I think, are likely inaccurate. I, I know for doctors, I've always heard it said, well, not always, but over the last several years especially, that in the United States alone, we can lose upwards of one physician per day throughout the year to suicide. Do you think that's accurate or do you think it might be even more acute than that? Yeah, I mean, the, the figure you shared is uh, consistent with what I have heard. It's about 400 physicians every year. And I, I think these numbers are uh, underestimation. I believe that they're underreported and there is lots of stigma associated with this, that topic. Even when somebody died in the hospital and we try to uh, debrief what happened we are told by leadership to just respect the privacy of the family. And that's a topic that we are not going to talk about. So it's very, very unfortunate. We try to celebrate the lives of uh, our colleagues and not forget about their legacy. But uh, even during their death, there is lots of secrecy and shame and uh, toxicity all, all around in the medical field. That's very true. And I remember in... Mm maybe 2021, there was a physician who took her own life. She was from New York City, and I think she went home to see her family in the South, and she took her life in the family home. And I know there was one not that long ago, someone who took his own life in the workplace. And, and then in terms of nurses, we don't have a whole lot of numbers, but we know it's there. And my worry is this this existential angst and deeply seated trauma that everyone seems to be carrying, or most everyone. And there's attrition from the healthcare field, right? We have doctors, nurses, social workers. Uh, I can't even say, I can't even enumerate it, leaving their professions, their beloved professions. And that's tragic 
for them and it's tragic for the society as a whole. So how do we stem the tide so that we can create workplaces that are healing and accepting where people feel valued and where people can get help and not necessarily just have to run for the hills. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you that uh, I believe the numbers for nursing suicide is much higher than that for physicians. Uh, I believe that uh, nurses are the foundation of the healthcare system. Uh, Our lifestyle as physicians is much more comfortable than that of nurses. And uh, many times, you know, the issues caused in the system are many times, I'm going to talk about this as a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. So when I give an order, um, maybe to uh, you know prescribe specific medicine or to keep a patient longer than they wanted to. Maybe there's a safety concern, so I place the patient on three-day hold or uh, one of the you know uh, mechanisms that I can keep them in the hospital to receive treatment against their will and their best interest. Though many times the staff, the the, the frontline staff, especially the nurses, will face the anger of the patient and even the violence. Of the patient, so I see uh, lots of moral injuries caused sometimes by the decisions made by the physicians, and the consequences are uh, are ones that uh, the nurses will bear. But uh, in order to break the cycle, I need to create a system. We need to create a system where uh, we care about one another, not only superficial kindness, but we really build a community of care. So I know when there is a change in your body language and your behavior, I make sure that your basic needs are met and you do the same for me. There is no shame about leaning on one another during these difficult times. But in order to create a workplace like that, it needs to be modeled by, I guess, from the top down and then from the bottom up, right? It has to work both ways. And we need a workplace culture where you're right. The superficial kindnesses are nice, right? Ask someone how their weekend was, you know, all that sort of thing. But we also need to go deeper. And you mentioned moral injury. And that also brings me to this notion of ethical dilemma. And there was a lot of ethical dilemma in the pandemic, you know, back in the first year to two years when Patients died alone in the hospital because their family couldn't visit. My father was one of them. He died in May of 2020, not from COVID, but he died in the hospital and no one could visit him. And I've heard from nurses firsthand, and I bet you have too, that ethical dilemma of knowing like this doesn't feel right, but I have to carry it because what else can I possibly do? I can't force administration to allow visitors and i have to i have to uphold whatever the policy is of the institution where i'm working so these ethical dilemmas and the moral injury that happens the wound we carry where does that go you know what do what do we do with it when we go home what happens to that injury inside there yeah i mean uh, i'm sorry to what happened to your father. Thank you. This must be a very difficult experience for the whole family. Thank and, you. Uh, I have heard from my colleagues, especially from nursing, that uh, sometimes they had to be the family member for their dying patient. And that's an added you know, burden on their shoulders. At the same time, it's a moral injury that uh, if 
we don't tend to our moral injury, I believe it will turn into a soul ache. And so the burnout is a deep soul ache that we feel. And uh, it's the reason that we um, sometimes believe that maybe leaving is better than half staying. Sometimes we cannot take our frustration on the system or our supervisor. So we might take it on our loved ones and that will create a very, very dysfunctional cycle. And that's why I created the, the untangled model because I have noticed many of my coworkers are quite tangled in a web of trauma that they will take on their loved ones. So maybe I cannot uh, talk in anger or frustration to my you know, um, supervisor, but I can do that to my spouse or my children. And maybe uh, rather than lashing out on them, I try to protect them and not burden them. So I will shut down and my silence become more burden for them. So either way, uh, I try to protect them from the burden of my work. But if I don't find the balance, I might actually cause more damage to my not only professional relationships, but also my personal relationships. Mm. So it's kind of like ripples in a pond. The reverberations of one's trauma in the workplace hemorrhage into the the home. And I know that's a mixed metaphor, but I'm really good at that. Um, and you created this model, the untangled model, which I read about. And can you explain the basic tenets of the model and what it means and what untangling means? Yeah, thank you. I mean, and this actually was created during an act of war in my home country, Libya. And uh, I started using it with refugees because I have noticed there is lots of dysfunction not only on the individual level, but also on the family and the communal level. So I created a model of uh, five components and very quickly. The first one is uh, psychoeducation. So we can break the cycle through uh, tackling the stigma associated with mental health. The second one is uh, capacity building of the local community through training of trainers. And the third one is creating safe spaces so we can have these conversations. The fourth one is building uh, culturally humble resources that will respect the local culture and context. And the last one, if needed, we can create clinical services like medication management or psychotherapy. Okay. So psychoeducation, capacity building, creation of safe spaces, humble resources. So you're saying culturally appropriate resources, depending where we are and what community we're working with, whether it's the Bronx or it's somewhere in Syria or Lebanon or, or Peru, and then clinical services. So this is really a, a uh, community model. So this is looking at the, the big picture and from a community standpoint. And can this also be, uh, well, how would I say it? Could you take this model or do you take this model and mold it slightly differently for the workplace, like let's say a healthcare workplace? Yeah, absolutely. That's why the wounded healer model, which is an actual retreat, uh, happens under the umbrella of Untangled. So my colleagues will go through uh, education so we can work on the stigma. We can raise capacity through training. And then we build safe spaces in the workplace. And uh, if needed, we together create for them and with them resources and clinical services that's great that's great so in in the context of the healthcare industry 
how are we doing <laughs> when it comes to addressing the trauma of our our workers or staff? You know, if we could give us in the big picture an A or an F or somewhere in between, how do you think we're doing? Yeah, I, I think we are really struggling. Uh, this is an early stage of awareness. So I think the pandemic, there is a blessing in disguise that uh, people are actually finally waking up and finding that there is another pandemic within the pandemic, which is the burnout and the psychosocial crisis. So many of uh, the colleagues who can afford it are actually either trying to challenge the system or you know, rehabilitate a system that they work with or even dismantle a system and build a more healthy and safe workplace. Uh, some of us, we have the luxury to do that. As a psychiatrist, I can easily walk away and find a job the same day. Uh, I really worry about some of my coworkers who don't have that privilege. They are stuck in very toxic and dysfunctional systems. And so, uh, as you said, Keith, I mean, it's very, very important for leadership and for administration to believe in this cause. So uh, we value our you know, uh, frontline staff and we take care of their emotional well-being because we are losing many of them. And I think this pandemic is preventable. I think that's true. And there are people like you doing this good work. There's my friend, Dr. Renee Thompson at the Healthy Workforce Institute. There's Dr. Edward Smink, who is your mentor and who's been on this show to talk about his book, The Soul of Caregiving. There's plenty of people out there. And I think there are organizations who are doing it right. And I'm sure you've had conversations with those who are kind of stepping up to the plate, so to speak. But it does sound like there's a lot more work to do. And it sounds like from the nursing point of view, when I look at the numbers, you know, we have 25% uh, vacancy of nursing positions in the state of Maryland right now. So that's just Maryland. But we can extrapolate that out and look at what's happening around the country. And when we hear that a large number of nurses want to leave the profession, some not to retire, some are younger and they just want to leave. And we have physicians who want to leave too, and social workers and chaplains. We're creating a circumstance where we're going to be in a little bit of trouble. And we actually, we are already in trouble. And your model, this untangled model, and the wounded healer, these are concepts and strategies that can be adopted at the community level, like we talked about, in the workplace. And I, I dare to say, even at a bigger level, like nationally and internationally, now I think that might sound a little Pollyannish or, or idealistic, but don't you think there's, there's the if we really pull the camera back and we look at the kind of global trauma, you know, what what do you think of these concepts when it comes to looking at the world, the big, big world? Yeah, I mean, as you know, Keith, I mean, the, the world is a global village and I totally agree with you. I mean, most likely uh, I have seen this not only in the United States or Canada, mm -hmm. I have seen it in many, many countries in different contexts. We have uh, epidemic or this at this time it's a pandemic of burnout and uh, you know the american nursing foundation they they surveyed nurses and uh, actually more than 57 percent of nurses they reported burnout 
and about 21 are actively that already made the decision to leave the industry. So uh, what you see in Maryland is uh, not surprising. I mean, um, about quarter of uh, the workforce is uh, intending to leave the workplace that they once loved and they went to school to care for others. But when you care for others and forget yourself or your loved ones, I don't think it's worth it. And uh, from a global perspective, I mean, I would love for Untangled and the Wounded Healer model to reach as many of my coworkers as possible, not only in North America, but everywhere. I would too. And I think it's great that you're coming to platforms like this one where you can reach people and maybe someone will hear about this and bring it to their workplace or bring it to their church or bring it to their, who knows, who knows where they might bring it, whatever institution or organization or community of which they're a part. So when we come back, We've, we've talked about the problem. We've talked about the deep soul ache of burnout and moral injury and ethical dilemmas and attrition and all these things that we're witnessing around us right now. And I'd like to talk about some solutions and strategies and what, what you see that can be brought forward by people like you and Dr. Smink and others to, to start facilitating some of this healing, which I know you already are doing by doing the work you're you're engaged in. So when we come back from the break, we will talk more with Dr. Omar Reda about these subjects and others. So hang out with us here for the second half of episode 393 of The Nurse Keith Show. And welcome back to the second half of the episode. Again, this is episode 393, and we're here with friend of the pod and my new friend and colleague, Dr. Omar Reda. And Omar, prior to the break, we were talking about the concept of the wounded healer and burnout and the deep soul ache of burnout, et cetera. And you have a passage you wanted to read us from the book that I would love for people to hear just a snippet of the book in your own voice. I think that's it's a really powerful way to be introduced to a piece of writing. Would you mind reading for us? Yeah, thank you, Keith. Yeah, I mean, I believe that medicine and healthcare in general is uh, uh, sometimes referred to as the industry of suffering. So the post-traumatic stress disorder that affects healthcare workers I consider as a moral distress rather than a mental disorder. There is a moral fatigue and soul ache that we feel that are constant reminders uh, that caring comes at a heavy cost. And that's why as a caregiver and as a fellow wounded healer, I really urge you to tend to your soul and take care of yourself today. Mm, Thank you. And I think that's a real, that's a real heartfelt, in a request of the reader to to look at themselves and look at what they can do to to help themselves move forward right yeah i mean unfortunately what i see every day uh, are people who continue to suffer because they don't believe that their their wounds deserve healing and they sometimes they don't even acknowledge that they are wounded and uh, they they would Tell me, yeah, self-care is wonderful, but it's a luxury that I cannot afford. And I'm afraid if we continue with that mentality, we're going to lose more colleagues to burn out. Yeah, and Dr. Edward Smink, your mentor and my friend and colleague, he 
has been on this show and he's talked about his book, The Soul of Caregiving, like I said. And he says that when you meet your shadow or a shadow in your psyche, you need to practice forgiveness. So what does that mean to you in the context of, let's say, healthcare providers when they yeah. meet their shadow? What happens? Mm-hmm. I mean, and the, the soul of caregiving there was an, an inspiration for me to write a wounded healer. And me and Edward became very close friends. And he's uh, like a father figure to me. But uh, I agree with you. I mean, uh, you know, trauma can make us uh, face very, very scary shadows and skeletons that many times we stuff in our closets. So uh, when Edward say, make sure that when you come face to face with your shadows, you know, practice forgiveness and also practice self-compassion. You can welcome your shadows as a brief guests but they should should not take over. They shouldn't take over the joy of caregiving, the joy of parenting, the joy of having a relationship, uh, you know, significant other, the joy of being a part of the community. So yes, I mean, we are not only caregivers in the hospitals or the clinics. Many of us are caregivers in different contexts, like taking care of elderly parents or young children or, you know, a whole community and try to be the glue that holds everybody together. So uh, I, I believe if we place thousands of people on our shoulders, then we try to protect them from falling, then self-care actually becomes a responsibility, not only a luxury, because we want to protect them from falling. And if we fall, everybody will fall with us. If we quit the you know healthcare industry, many people will lose on our experience and expertise. And there are very few of us, Keith, who do this uh, sacred work. That's why I try to protect my coworkers through urging them to really take care of uh, themselves, their loved ones, and just be comfortable with the very difficult but honest conversations that are overdue. Mm-hmm. Right. And when Ed talks about meeting your shadow and practicing forgiveness, are you forgiving yourself for your your shortcomings, where, what does the forgiveness do for us and where do we point it, so to speak? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, mainly forgiveness is towards the self. Many of us, especially nurses and doctors, we, we, we might save thousand lives, but then if we lose one life, we beat ourselves up. We are, are very you know, quick to forgive everybody, but ourselves, we practice medicine and nursing through guilt and shame and uh, i i just want to people to know that we have boundaries and we need to assert our boundaries there are more needs than our resources so do your best then go and take care of yourself and your loved ones there is more trauma tomorrow so make sure that you don't become everything for everybody all the time don't become everything for everybody all the time yeah i i when you said that, I was picturing a nurse, you know, putting on her cape and, you know, rushing into the into the fire, so to speak, right? Like a firefighter rushes into the burning building. And yeah, we do that a lot, especially those who work in trauma-related situations. But we can't continually rush into the fire if we're not figuring out how to take care of ourselves in between. And you mentioned self-care and that term has become quite ubiquitous in our culture. And I think that's a good thing. I mean, it's not a bad term to be 
bandied about a lot. However, I feel like my, for myself that sometimes when a term becomes so used universally and we hear about it all the time on commercials and YouTube videos and everywhere that we become almost immune to it because it gets diluted. So when you talk about that with people, I don't think you're necessarily talking about, you know, take a yoga class and come home and light a candle and, you know, take a bath. I mean, those are good things and everybody should do those things. But I think as a psychiatrist, there's probably a deeper part of this. So could you explain from your perspective what what it really means? Yeah, and uh, I really appreciate how you said many of us, we actually are attracted to very deadly fires. And, uh, you know, the, the, the caregiving industry will bring all of these fires and all of this trauma and the stories of others we need to bear witness to. At the same time, we need to keep a safe distance from the fire and we need to be equipped to jump into which swimming pool or which fire is uh, safe enough for me to jump into and uh, make sure that uh, I can delegate some of the responsibilities to others and make sure that I practice self-care within a community. So I agree with you. I mean, uh, all of uh, the, the, the tips and the tools that my wellness colleagues, they give are wonderful uh, to practice self-care in isolation. At the same time, we need to practice self-care in a community. And when we talk about self-care, it's not only taking care of our biological needs, not only my body, we're also made of a mind. So taking care of psychological needs, we're made of a heart, taking care of our social needs, and we are made of a spirit or a soul. So taking care of our spiritual needs. So self-care for me is a comprehensive and a communal affair. Comprehensive and communal. So that doesn't necessarily mean going to church, but for many people it does. For other people, it might have to do with their extended family, perhaps, or the community in which they live. Like you said, you mentioned the word community several times. And in the book, you also talk about relationships, you talk about marriage, and you talk about the sacred contract. What does that mean in the context of trauma and caregiving? You know, what it, where does that sacred contract come in, whether that's the contract between spouses or a father and a son or a mother and a son? You know, how would you contextualize that? Yeah, thank you. That's a beautiful question. Yeah, I believe like most of our wounds or our trauma have been caused by relationships that are dysfunctional. And most of our healing will happen when we heal our interpersonal relationships. So it's very important for me to actually create safe and sacred spaces, not only between spouses. Yes, the sacred contract can be seen as uh, between spouses, but uh, you are absolutely right. That's why me and my three daughters, we created the daughter-father bonding project. It's uh, 60 videos on YouTube mm -hmm. to make sure that uh, fathers are comfortable talking to their teenage girls. There are uh, similar you know, projects bonding you know, children with their moms and their siblings. And so when it comes to family, I want to empower family to be the first line of defense against trauma that happens to the caregiver. And at the same time, I don't want my caregiver colleagues to uh, come to homes that are dysfunctional. I don't want their trauma to cause dysfunction and breakdown of their homes. 
I, I wanted them to find the, the, the healthy balance between leaving the work issues at work and leaving the home issues at home. That's wonderful. And, and I love what you just said about doing this YouTube project with your daughters. How old are they? Yeah, I have a 13, 16, and 18. And we have created during the pandemic uh, 60 videos so far. And how do we find the videos? Yeah, just type the daughter-father bonding project. Daughter-father bonding project into YouTube? That's correct, yeah. Okay, we'll try to remember to get that into the show notes too, because that's that's beautiful. I really love that. So part of it then is, is figuring out what this sort of healing and self-care means for you and the people around you. And you talk in the book too about healing through love, and love means listening for L, options for O, validation for V and empowerment for E. Do you want to talk about that particular concept? Yeah, I mean, I I have seen that to be quite effective in my own home with my own children. Mm-hmm. So rather than sending them on a time out, I bring them into a time in when they are uh, struggling. I have done the same with my clients that are agitated or even almost violent. And when we de-escalate the situation, Usually people will uh, resort to other ways to solve their problem other than violence. So yes, when I actively listen to someone, I practice love. And listening is an active form of love. When I give them options, it's not only my way or the highway, then I'm also practicing compassion. When I validate their experience, when I empower them and make them part of the solution, not only see them as part of the problem, then I'm practicing a comprehensive you know, way of uh, healing folks. And uh, I, I want to go back to, you know, one theme that I, I keep, you know, talking about in the book, which is, please don't lose the American dream chasing it. Your family is the American dream. So many of us uh, doctors and nurses, we, will, we work very long hours. We uh, spend all of our en- energy outside the house. When we come home, we are quite depleted. We, we think that we are working hard to just provide materialistically for our children. Mm -hmm. But then we neglect their needs and they go to bed with full stomach and empty soul. And that's uh, completely not my definition of the American dream. Mm. Full stomach and empty soul. I, I, uh, I often listen to what people say, whether it's on this podcast or not. And I think, okay, that's the name of your next book. (laughs) I like that. That's really lovely. And the daughter-father bonding project, man, I can picture a coffee table book. I can picture so much because that whole idea of bonding between father and daughter is, is a beautiful thing. And and I can't wait to share this with some people who I know and love. Thank you. I mean, uh, yeah. remember, I, I, I think, you know, we are trying to do our best given our circumstances. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I think most of the uh, tools and most of the models out there are mainly dealing with intervention. We're mm-hmm. dealing with the current issue. We are being uh, reactive. I-, I like for people to use prevention and be proactive. So if we reach our children before they are traumatized, maybe we can break the cycle. Well, it sounds like you're bringing up three very empowered uh, emotionally and relationally intelligent young women. So that's 
you're also giving a gift to the whole culture and the whole society by by raising three wonderful daughters. So well done. <laughs> I think that's really beautiful. And going back to caregiving for a second, Dr. Smink sees caregiving as an act of love and an act of service. So whether we're caring for an elderly parent or in-law or a disabled spouse or child, or maybe a neighbor who is needy and we, we help our neighbor, what is it about acts of love and service that come back to us? What feeds us when we are in act, it, when we're in service? Yeah, I mean, I think if you look for beauty, you'll find lots of beauty. Mm-hmm. If you practice and compassion, you're going to get lots of compassion in return. Uh, my worry is, Keith, is uh, I, I see this with the new nurses and new doctors, and I actually was guilty of that myself when I started going to refugee camps and you know helping people in my war-affected country, Libya. Uh, I, I really neglected my own self-care. I developed my own version of PTSD. And many people were dying during the war, and they were very proud to die. They say, I die so my country can survive. And we many times do that as physicians and nurses. I say, I'm going to sacrifice myself and have the martyr you know, mentality yes. so other people can survive and thrive. I don't think we need to do that anymore. Uh, heroes are not supposed to die. We, uh, we, cannot, we, we should live for the industry, not only die for it. Yeah. And, and being a hero doesn't mean being a martyr and being of service doesn't mean being a martyr. And I've seen that in the, the NGO space, the non-governmental organization space, people who go out there to save the world and very idealistic young people, and they get every tropical disease known to humankind and they, they ignore their own well-being and they don't take care of themselves. And sure, they do great work and have a big global impact, but we think about the impact on them and their own bodies and their their lives and their families. So it can happen in healthcare, it can happen in the international you know, aid space, it can happen everywhere. And in your book, you talk about the healing power of justice. And you just mentioned refugee camps, and I know we have to wind down in a minute, but where does justice fit into this conversation? Yeah, I mean, justice is a very vital component for healing. Yeah, And uh, I speak from personal experience. I mean, uh, I come from a Muslim and Arab background. So mm-hmm. I have uh, had my own share of, you know, hate and Islamophobia. And uh, I understand after September 11, the United States was very different in space. There was lots of suspicion when it comes to people who look and walk and talk like me. At the same time, I wanted to not be part of the problem. I started to use my voice as a healing tool and to try to build interfaith and intercultural dialogue, reach out to people who uh, don't know me, but who judge me because of my accent or skin color or the way I decided to practice my religion. And eventually, actually, I found lots of healing and beauty in these conversations because most of our differences come from fear not from hate and anger. So um, justice for me is to speak up on behalf of the voiceless, not only people in refugee camps, but also your co-workers who otherwise are marginalized. Absolutely. So in the course of our conversation, we're talking about 
the micro. So we're going back into the the caregiver, the human being's own self, their own soul, like their deeper shadow and the work that we do on ourselves. And then we're we're expanding out, out, out into the family, co-workers, workplace, community, society, country, and then we're looking at the global picture. So it sounds like your your concept of the untangled project and the wounded healer, it does really run the continuum from micro to macro, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I don't want to like sound idealistic and you know say these things are very easy to solve or resolve. Sure. At the same time, I don't believe that we will reach full healing and uh, you know uh, healing that's meaningful if we don't heal all of these aspects about ourselves. Right. And if people want to learn more, I know they go to DrOmarReda.com. That's D-R-O-M-A-R-R-E-D-A.com. That'll be in the show notes. And they can also go to ProjectUntangled.org. And when they go there, they'll see it's a platform for love, hope, and healing, assisting trauma survivors and caregivers in healing invisible wounds, which is really beautiful. And we can also find the daughter father bonding project on youtube and your book the wounded healer the pain and joy of caregiving can be found on amazon is that right yes available on all kinds of bookstores yeah that's really wonderful and we'll highly recommend that so omar before we say goodbye i have four questions i like to ask all of my guests are you game for four questions mostly they're about you are you up for that? Sounds good. Okay. So the first question is, how do you define success, either personally and or professionally? Yeah, for me, uh, personal success, uh, if uh, everybody around me feels safe. So mm-hmm. people are safe when it comes to my actions and when it comes to my words. Uh, professionally, believe it or not, my success is defined if I lose my job as a trauma expert. If I lose my job, that means there is no more trauma in the world, and that will be my dream come true. Great. Well, let's hope you lose your job then, Omar, and then you find something else to do like gardening. (laughs) And uh, the second question is, could you name, or if you don't want to name them personally, just describe a person who's inspired you in the course of your life. They can be living, they can be dead, they can be famous, or just someone in your own personal life who none of us would know. Yeah, I have uh, many role models. Uh, one of them is uh, the Prophet Muhammad, who I use as a roadmap and a role model for everything that I do. Uh, my mom, who died in 2016, she was the definition of compassion, and she's the reason that I do the work that I do. And my two mentors, Dr. Edward Smink and Dr. Richard Molika, who were uh, inspirational in writing this book. Lovely. Okay. Thank you. And the third one is, is there a book or it could even be a movie, a film, and it doesn't have to be an absolute favorite, but one that comes to mind that's had an impact on the way you think or the way you live your life? Yeah. I mean, uh, The Soul of Caregiving by Edward Smink was the reason I wrote The Wounded Healer. Mm. And that, that's a book that deeply impacted me because it talked about the soul And I believe our burnout is nothing more than a soul ache. Yeah, that is a really beautiful book. And Ed has really 
waxed poetic on this show about about the soul of caregiving and he's a he's a beautiful man doing great work out there in the world just like you so one last question what's one piece of advice you'd give 18 year old omar right now whether you think he would listen or not mm-hmm. i would say you know the world can be a very unsafe place but i don't have to be uh, I don't have to believe all of the dysfunctional things that are dictated on me as a young physician or a young nurse. I need to practice self-compassion even when I make mistakes. And I should also remember that uh, my family should always come first. Yes, I take care of others. At the same time, I cannot neglect my loved ones. That's beautiful, Omar. Thank you. Thanks. And I, I bet he'd listen. And I bet your daughters hear a lot of great positive messages from you. So uh, thank you so much for spending this time. And I do highly, highly recommend the book, The Wounded Healer. It's a great companion to Ed Spink's book. And I think this is another, uh, this book just adds to the body of important literature about this time in history where we find ourselves. So thanks for being out there and bringing all this love and healing and and consciousness to the world. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Keith. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Nurse Keith Show. Please visit DrOmarRada.com. Please consider buying a copy of The Wounded Healer, The Pain and Joy of Caregiving. You can find the show notes at NurseKeith.com or on any app where you happen to be listening to the show. I hope you feel uplifted, empowered, and maybe even a little healed from this episode. And if you need personalized holistic career coaching, check out NurseKeith.com and NurseKeithCoaching. Mention the show show and get 10% off your first coaching package. And if you'd like to become a patron of the show for even $2 a month, it really helps me fund the ongoing production of this show. And you can head over to patreon.com forward slash nurse Keith to check it all out. We are a proud member of the Health Podcast Network at healthpodcastnetwork.com. We're adroitly produced by the wonderful Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting. And Mark Cappiespeason is our inimitable and stalwart social media ringmaster and newsletter wrangler. Before we say goodbye, I'll leave you with this quote, one of my very, very favorites. This is by the musician Robert Fripp. May my living honor my parents. May my living repay the debt of my existence. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico. And Dr. Omar Reda saying arrivederci from? Greeny, Colorado. Thank you, Dr. Reda. This has really been wonderful and an honor. Thank you to everyone for listening. And we will catch you on the proverbial flip side. 